Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Faced with more than 500 lawsuits stemming from clergy sexual abuse, the San Francisco Catholic Diocese last week said it had no choice but to seek Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. It follows similar moves by dioceses here and around the nation, and all that raises the question, can abuse survivors get justice, or something like it, through a bankruptcy proceeding? What does it mean for people who have pending lawsuits and people who simply go to church here in the city? We'll talk about why these bankruptcies are happening now and what survivors can expect as the bureaucratic wheels begin to turn. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. For more than 20 years, sexual abuse scandals have roiled Catholic communities across the nation. So you might be thinking, why are Catholic dioceses in California filing for bankruptcy right now? There is a precise reason. In the wake of the Me Too movement, California legislators opened a window from the beginning of 2020 until the end of 2022 for victims of child sexual abuse to bring forth suits, even in cases where the alleged abuse was several decades ago. Hundreds of people stepped forward, and the first cases were set to go to trial when the San Francisco Diocese declared for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Here to fill us in on the news first, we're joined by Sophia Bolag, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle who's been following the story. Welcome, Sophia. Thanks for having me. So let's get the basic facts of the situation here in the Bay Area out. How many cases is the diocese facing from uh, sexual abuse survivors? They're facing roughly 500 cases. Wow. And in this case, we're not just talking about San Francisco. This other diocese in the Bay Area have also filed for bankruptcy protection. 
Yes, there are two other dioceses in the Bay Area that have filed for bankruptcy. Those are the dioceses of Oakland and Santa Rosa. So uh, San Francisco is actually the, the third diocese in Northern California that we've seen make this move. Yeah. And there's others around the country, too, which we'll get into shortly. What did the diocese say about its decision to file for bankruptcy? It essentially said that the, the archbishop made this determination because it is facing so many of these sexual abuse lawsuits. Um, as you noted, uh, there is a recent state law that opened this three-year window from the start of 2020 to the end of 2022 that allowed people to file lawsuits essentially regardless of when the abuse uh, that they experienced occurred. And so that has really caused a wave of lawsuits against different types of institutions throughout the state. Um, but the Catholic Church has been um, one of the, the largest institutions that's seen a lot of these lawsuits. And so that's why you're seeing um, the archdiocese and these other dioceses filing for bankruptcy. Yeah. Just want to note, too, that our program, we reached out to the diocese to invite the archbishop or a representative onto the show, and we're directed to uh, the archbishop's statement, which is on the diocese website, if you want to take a look at that. I want to bring in Marie Riley, who's a professor of law at Penn State, an expert in bankruptcy, and who has really been studying the bankruptcies of Catholic dioceses. Welcome, Marie. Good morning. So why is bankruptcy the option that these dioceses are, are opting for? Well, uh, uh, there's sort of two ways to go. One would be to just uh, try to resolve claims in the state court uh, system. Uh, and the alternative is bankruptcy, in which um, you, you, the the, the procedure uh, takes place before a federal bankruptcy judge. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a way to kind of uh, address all of the claims as a batch altogether, rather than individual one-off claim resolution through litigation outside of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. um, the archbishop in, this, uh, in San Francisco and other Catholic religious leaders um, have explained that for Catholic organizations, it's important to treat all claimants fairly and as equally as possible. Sorry. Oh, no problem. You know, um, one, qu one question I have, Marie, you know, we use bankruptcy pretty colloquially. Can you help us understand what's specifically important about Chapter 11 bankruptcy? Yes, the word bankruptcy, I think, has a lot of um, emotional, powerful connotations for for people, and uh, I think it's useful to remember that um, in this context, the, the the proceeding is we call it a reorganization. The um, archdiocese isn't going to go out of business. It isn't going to uh, necessarily liquidate all of its assets, um, and it's it's it isn't conceding that it cannot uh, continue as a as a as a as a vi viable operation, but um, what it's trying to do is come up with a plan to pay uh, whatever liability it has to all of the claimants against it, and still preserve and continue its charitable and religious mission. Hmm. So you know we know that churches are sometimes treated differently under, say, tax law. Will the diocese? 
be treated any differently uh, or will survivors be treated any differently um, because the church is a religious institution as it goes into this chapter 11? Not really. Uh, religious corporations, religious organizations um, seek relief in bankruptcy all the time, not just Catholic organizations. Um, and it, over the 20 years worth of uh, diocesan bankruptcies, I think it's fair to conclude that um, courts have uh, treated Catholic organizations just like anybody else. If you seek relief in bankruptcy, you kind of take the all of the law um, and it all applies to you the same way it would to any other nonprofit organization. Aren't there some complexities, though, about the way that a diocese might hold property relative to some other corporation? Well, there there are, and part of those have to do with uh, history, and part part of those complications have to do with the unique Catholic uh, uh, nature of these organizations. Um, within a, a a diocese is a, a geographic region, and there's a, a a bishop or archbishop who presides as kind of supervisor over all of that geographic region. But operating within the geographic region are going to be um, uh, uh, kind of affiliate Catholic organizations like parishes, sometimes there are schools that are uh, operating within a, a, a geographic diocese, hospitals, cemeteries, charitable foundations. Um, and under canon law, all those organizations are subject to the uh, supervision of the bishop. Um, but under civil law or secular law, non-religious law, all of those entities can be, and sometimes are, sometimes are not, um, separately incorporated individual legal entities that stand on their own and can hold title to their own property. So when I mentioned history before, um, uh, Catholic organizations like the Archdiocese of San Francisco have been around for a really long time. And when they were first organized, you know, the law, especially corporate law, wasn't nearly as developed as it is today. And the choices for, for religious organizations about how they should be organized and how they should hold property were, were a lot different than they are today. And, um, and, and over time, you know, the asset portfolios, what, what, who, whose name is on the title to this mm -hmm. church or, or that school, maybe wasn't as meticulously maintained in, you know, 100, 150 years ago as it would be today. So, um, yeah, there's some, when you look back over a long, enduring organization, who owns what, it can be kind of complicated. Um, that's true of all enduring organizations that have affiliates, but it's particularly true of Catholic organizations yeah. because of um, the Catholic organizational hierarchy that's mm -hmm. part of canon law. And we're going to get more into this, I'm sure, later in the show. Sophia, I know that there were other lawsuits that were going forward as this bankruptcy uh, proceeding was declared. What happens to all of those? They are essentially all on pause now. There were actually two lawsuits that were scheduled to begin trial on Wednesday, last Wednesday, um, and those are now paused. Um, I spoke to one of the, the men who is suing the archdiocese about that. And, you know, essentially his case is now in limbo. And uh, so are the cases of all the other uh, plaintiffs who are suing the archdiocese alleging sexual abuse. Um, and so 
those cases um, will, you know, proceed forward eventually with the bankruptcy proceedings, but they don't get to continue on as individual cases the way they had intended to. Hmm. And what's the timeline looking like for this bankruptcy proceeding? Do we have any sense? I I don't have a sense at this particular moment. Um, Marie might have a better sense mm-hmm. of, of when things will really get going, but this bankruptcy filing was made just last week. Um, and so we're really, you know, in, in early days mm-hmm. in terms of knowing how long it's going to take. I'm sure this is going to be part of your beat for a while, at least. Thank you so much, <laughs> uh, Sophia Boleg, uh, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We are talking about Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing by the San Francisco Catholic Diocese and others um, in this region. We're still joined by Marie Riley, who's professor of law at Penn State University. Marie, from your perspective or from what you've heard as you've covered these uh, these bankruptcy proceedings, are there any benefits to survivors for having a bankruptcy proceeding like this? Or is it really, as we've heard from some advocates and as we'll hear later, uh, uh, just a tactic by the church? Well, uh, yeah, that's a question that I think uh, it's sort of like eye of the beholder. Um, what I was trying to explain before, what happens in a bankruptcy proceeding, it's not like the claims or the liability goes away. Um, it, it's just processed in a different way. And, and so for some uh, sex abuse claimants, they might strongly prefer to have their claim uh, litigated in a, the state court system. But other sex abuse claimants might prefer the relative confidentiality and anonymity of having their claims evaluated and ultimately paid um, through an agreed process, which is what, what, what will ultimately occur if the Archdiocese of San Francisco is able to successfully conclude this bankruptcy case. The whole point of filing for Chapter 11 is to come up with a global settlement with all sex abuse uh, creditors. Um, uh, and, and to achieve that global settlement, you, ha- you, have, to, you have to get their buy-in. You have to persuade sex abuse creditors that the deal that they're going to get in bankruptcy or the payment that they're going to receive in, in this bankruptcy case is, a, is at least as good as uh, as a group, as what they would likely receive um, outside of hmm. bankruptcy in the state court system. So yeah. it, it's not it's not like, um, I, I mean, I kind of uh, find the choice of the word limbo to be sort of interesting because that has a lot of religious connotations yeah. for Catholics. But And but we'll be the, uh, back in just a sec with Marie Riley, professor of law at Penn State University. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing of the San Francisco Catholic Diocese and what it means for clergy abuse survivors as well as the faithful. We've been joined so far by Marie Riley, professor of law at Penn State University, who's been studying Catholic dioceses who've gone into bankruptcy. Earlier, we were also joined by Sophia Boleg, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. And we want to hear from you. Are you a practicing Catholic? What questions do you have about the bankruptcy? What concerns do you have? Are you a survivor of clergy abuse? How are you thinking about these proceedings? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, obviously also on Discord, as we've been telling you, our digital community or KQED forum. want to add uh, a couple of other voices, also noting that we did ask the diocese to come onto the show and they direct us to a letter, which you can find on the diocese website by the archbishop. Um, we will be joined by Rick Simons, an attorney, counselor, co-counsel on 75 individual clergy abuse lawsuits filed in Northern California and also serves as the Northern California court liaison for the 1600 clergy abuse cases filed against various Northern California dioceses. Welcome, Rick. Uh, Thank you. Good morning. We're also joined by Joey Piscatelli, Northwest group leader of SNAP, which is the survivors network of those abused by priests. Piscatelli is a survivor of clergy abuse, won a judgment against the Silesian Order following a trial in 2006 in Contra Costa County. Welcome. Good morning. You know, Joey, I want to start with you. You know, you filed this lawsuit against the Silesian Order. Your case went to trial in Contra Costa. You won your case, though the church appealed and lost. What are you making of these bankruptcies? Like, are, do you feel surprised, outraged, hopeful? I'm. I'm, I'm all of those things. Um, I think that the um, Diocese of San Francisco itself has a uh, black belt uh, in uh, secrecy and hiding things. And I think bankruptcy is another form uh, that they use to further hide things. Um, I, and they refuse to put out the names of the uh, priests who have been cu- accused of sexual abuse. And I think uh, bankruptcy itself also helps to hide those names. And uh, the Diocese of Oakland, for instance, has asked the bankruptcy court to redact the names mm. of all the priests who have been accused of sexual abuse. And I think the Diocese of San Francisco is probably going to do that in a bankruptcy as well. So I think bankruptcy um, aids uh, the church in doing a lot of things. Yeah. Rick, what else do you worry might not come out in a bankruptcy proceeding that would come out in a in a civil trial well in a bankruptcy proceeding we the creditors the survivors and their lawyers lose the ability to conduct the discovery which is the legal term for getting information under oath uh, that we would have in the court system and that discovery 
not only extends to the church's files and own records, but finding other people who are corroborative witnesses uh, to the abuse and finding other victims who may have spent all these years suffering in silence because they thought they were the only one. Uh, they, for a lot of good personal reasons, wouldn't come forward to speak out. And now learning about other victims, such as the two gentlemen who were ready to start their trial last week in a public proceeding in San Francisco Superior Court, uh, they learn about other proceedings like that and other survivors, and they come forward. So I think the public information, not just our information sources as lawyers uh, representing survivors, but the public's information sources are shut off by the bankruptcy. And that's part of the reason that the archdiocese waited this long and is now choosing to hide in secrecy with its long history of many, many perpetrator priests. Rick, is the burden of proof different in a bankruptcy proceeding from a civil case? Well, the entire process is different. In a civil case, you have a right to a trial with a jury, a community trial, a public trial. In the bankruptcy creditors committee, uh, as Marie mentioned earlier, you know, everybody gets thrown into one pot there's a, you know, a trustee appointed and some formula set up, uh, but that's not a way to allocate the harm and recognize the harm with compensation, the lifetime of harm with compensation in a fair way individually, as individual cases would be in the civil system. I want to get to some of the reactions that are coming in from listeners. Um, Daniel writes, there needs to be a law that debt cannot be discharged for purposes of avoiding certain liabilities. That is already true for obligations such as student loans. It should be true for nonprofits such as churches, hospitals, et cetera. I just want to note on that one that Marie was saying earlier, that's not that debts would go away. They're just playing out in a, in a different way. Another listener on Instagram comments, a terrible ploy to avoid justice. One listener writes in to say, I'm an 80-year-old woman who has been a practicing Catholic my whole life. I will not attend Mass in either the San Francisco or Oakland Diocese because of the Archbishop's public rebuke of Nancy Pelosi and because the bishop agreed with it. The bankruptcy filings increase my contempt for these two. I won't let right-wing extremists take my flag and won't let the bishops uh, take my faith. Joey uh, Piscatelli, you know, in its statements, the church has said that these are old claims and in the past, and it wants to move forward. What's your response to that? Well, when they say they're old claims, um, that's misleading because the average uh, sex abuse survivor, and I know a lot of them, and I'm one myself, um, they don't come forward right away. So when you say they're old claims, um, that's expected because the average sex abuse survivor I know doesn't come forward for at least 25 years. Mm-hmm. So when Bishop Corleone made a statement saying, well, these are old claims, um, I think he's wiser than that. He knows that the, that it took them that long to come forward. Myself as a sex abuse survivor and a person who, who um, advocates for other sex abuse f- survivors, most of the people I've talked to in the last 20 years who were sex abuse survivors uh, didn't come forward for at least 30 years. And most of the people who called me and say they were abused, molested, or raped 
didn't even come forward at all and file a claim or tell anybody about it, uh, except for me and maybe their, their spouse or something. So um, to say that they're old claims is ludicrous. Um, Marty Riley, one of our listeners writes in to ask, will the bankruptcy case allow the cases to be paid out? What about claims that were less than credible or difficult to prove? Who's going to evaluate whether the plaintiff has an actual case? So what happens in a, a bankruptcy case, uh, I, you know, I, I just want to comment. I'll answer your question, but I, I feel like um, the, the suggestion that there's some kind of um, you know, secrecy or uh, uh, the use of a bankruptcy proceeding to hide is uh, mm, not completely fair. Uh, in a bankruptcy case, everybody who takes who, who files for relief has got to provide huge amounts of uh, information about their financial circumstances, uh, about their property holdings. Um, about their operate uh, their operations and all of that information becomes publicly available. I mean, I've said in in other places that bankruptcy is a particularly bad place to hide because of all of the disclosure requirements. Um, second, if, with respect to what happens to claims, um, if the archdiocese is able to. Uh, confirm or you know uh, come up with a plan of reorganization how claims will get paid uh will probably follow a claims payment protocol that's achieved by agreement um, between the diocese and um the the lawyers who represent sex abuse claimants so uh, rather than have um, claims adjudicated on an individual basis in the state court systems, this kind of batch processing permits the these parties to agree as to how claims are going to be validated and ultimately paid. Um, and, you know, that's going to be uh, beneficial to some claimants and, you know, others are going to prefer, per perhaps prefer um, that their claim should be, you know, exposed to a trial and, 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 and treated in the, in the non non-bankruptcy system. So, um, you know, I, I think that for uh, many creditors, they're going to prefer uh, the outcome that they get in bankruptcy in a bankruptcy case to to what what to, to taking their chances at, in state court. Yeah. You know, Rick Simons, I just want to ask you to comment on Marie's response about the disclosure requirements of bankruptcy proceedings, because you will get to learn a lot about how the church operates through this proceeding. Right. Even if it's not exactly the same set of information that you would have gotten in a civil trial? Well, uh, I disagree for a couple of reasons. One is the information does not come in individual case uh, orientation. So you don't get the information about an individual priest accused of child sexual assault uh, that you get by taking individual depositions in individual cases. You don't get that information spread out to the public where people come forward. And we know from experience that the more public disclosure there is about an individual perpetrator, the more other victims who thought they were the only one who uh, couldn't come forward for many, many good reasons. They were dealing with drug and alcohol issues. They had parents still living who were very, very devout Catholics and 
who uh, would never have believed the priest that they invited to their house for dinner and and embraced uh, was actually molesting their child. It would be too harmful to the family. Uh, there's many, many reasons why, as uh, Joey mentioned, delayed reporting is well established. And so we get information from a lot of people who don't appear in the church's files and the church's files don't appear in public individually the way they would in a public trial. They appear under confidentiality orders. They appear uh, to bankruptcy lawyers, but they don't appear to the public where most of the information now sits. I want to add one more voice to our discussion here. We have Mike Lachlan, who's a national correspondent and associate editor with America, the Jesuit Review. He's covered the Catholic Church for both the Boston Globe and for Crux. Welcome, Mike. Hey, good to be with you. Um, I'm actually going to bring in a call or two that I think you might want to uh, chat with. Richard in San Rafael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Richard, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here and my blood is boiling. I'm a lifelong Catholic. Um, and the most distressing thing for me, well, I can't even indicate what that is, is this issue of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church has been boiling for 40 plus years since, since it was broken in Boston by the Boston Globe. And and we, we really haven't made any strides at all. The church is still engaged in massive cover-up. And, uh, and a, a major church reformation is called for. I personally uh, will, will not support the church financially. Mm-hmm. Any support that I would make to any of its legitimate causes would be made directly to them as nonprofits. But the church, the church is at a point where uh, there has to be demands from, from the pews that the church sell off its assets, its property, its its investments. And, uh, and that starts with Rome because this is an issue throughout the world the, uh, the sex criminals that are within the church, they've got to be removed from all ministerial contact. And the, the way to address what will be and is continuing to be the church shortage, the priest shortage, is to begin ordaining women. There's nothing in, there's nothing in uh, uh, outside, of, outside of tradition yeah. that is preventing that. Hey, Richard, so I'll, thank- I'll leave yeah i'll leave it right now appreciate your perspective thank you so much for for sharing that and you know mike i i i'm sure as someone who writes about um these issues for a catholic publication you've encountered uh some of these thoughts before what what are you thinking yeah i think uh richard the caller raises the complex feelings that a lot of catholics hold right now uh on the one hand they belong to an institution that's important to them on the other they've been uh horrified uh by revelations over the past couple decades about how some priests acted how bishops covered it up and i think he 
in withholding money, not going to mass kind of encapsulates what a lot of Catholics are feeling. I think one thing that is important to remember are the strides that the church has made. Uh, there's certainly uh, a lot of work to do when it comes to transparency. We're seeing in San Francisco uh, the refusal to publish names of credibly accused priests, for example. But there's been a lot of progress in making sure that priests, parents, families are trained, uh, that safeguarding is prevalent in parishes and uh, other Catholic institutions. So remembering that while also calling for greater accountability and transparency, I think is where a lot of Catholics are. And it is a difficult and sometimes uh, uncomfortable place to be. What do you make of this you know, seeking out of bankruptcy protection by these different dioceses? I think it's tough. You know, I've heard from uh, groups uh, like Joey's that this feels like a way for the church to be hiding assets. We've seen in other uh, situations claims that uh, the diocese has transferred assets that they don't want to be part of settlements before they go into bankruptcy. So I think there's been enough um, shady activity, perhaps, to give pause uh, to make people doubt the sincerity of these requests. On the other hand, I've heard uh, from other organizations that this is a helpful way to make sure that uh, survivors of abuse are treated justly and fairly. I, I think for Catholics, uh, there's the sense of we don't know what is truly fair and what's not. Uh, we want to have justice for survivors and make sure that they're given the help that they request. At the same time, there's a deep sadness that this institution that has done so much good work is put in this position where uh, it might not have the resources to continue its ministry. So I think it's an incredibly complex situation uh, and holding that tension of wanting to make sure survivors are treated fairly and respectfully, while also hoping that the church can continue its ministry in some way. Have you thought about leaving the church? Oh. <laughs> well, as, as a gay Catholic, I have thought about leaving the church many times, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure anyone who's part of the church today has thought about it as well. It's, I sometimes joke it's not easy for anyone to be Catholic. There'll be moments when it's difficult. But remembering kind of the core of what keeps someone in the institution, uh, whether it's their uh, their faith, their community, I think that can be hugely important. And also, it, it should be seen as a, as a positive contribution to the church to want to hold our leaders accountable. I don't think there's a, a necessarily required to leave because you're calling for accountability and transparency. We're talking about the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing of the San Francisco Catholic Diocese and what it means for clergy abuse survivors as well as the faithful. We're joined by Micah Lachlan, national correspondent and associate editor at America, the Jesuit Review. He's the author of Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. We're also joined by Joey Piscatelli, the Northwest Group Leader of Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, otherwise known as SNAP, a survivor of clergy abuse who won a trial in 2006 in Contra Costa County. We're also joined by attorney Rick Simons, who's counselor, co-counsel on 75 individual clergy abuse lawsuits filed in Northern California, and Marie Riley, an expert on bankruptcy and professor of law at Penn State University. We'll get to more of your calls and comments. Are you a practicing Catholic? What questions do you have about the bankruptcy? Are you a survivor of, of abuse? What do you think about what's happening? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Discord, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the San Francisco Catholic Diocese filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, what that means for clergy abuse survivors as well as the faithful. We're joined by Marie Riley, a professor of law at Penn State and an expert in bankruptcy who's been studying these Catholic dioceses that have been opting for this route. Joined by Rick Simons. He's counsel or co-counsel on 75 individual clergy abuse lawsuits here in Northern California. Joy Piscatelli, who's an advocate for survivors of uh, clergy abuse, and Michael Lachlan, national correspondent and associate editor with America, the Jesuit Review. We're going to take more of your calls on how you're thinking about or talking about the bankruptcy, you know, among your community if you're practicing Catholic. Number is 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. So I want to bring in a, another caller. Let's bring in Blair in San Francisco. Welcome. Hey, Blair, you there? Nope. All right. Hello. Oh, hey, Can Blair. You hear me? Yeah, Blair, go ahead. I'm, okay, I'm so sorry. Yes, my, my question is simple. It's just, um, is there knowledge of, of just how much money the church actually has? I understand that there's a lot of that is tied up in property, et cetera. But, you know, it seems to me from an outsider that there's tons of money that the Catholic Church globally has. And how that relates to this mm. idea of bankruptcy, maybe more locally. Yeah. And that's my question. I'll take it off the air. Blair, great question. Um, just, uh, Marie, this one's first coming to you. Um, we also have a, a commenter, Michael, who writes in to say, will the church have to sell its assets, cemeteries, schools, uh, even churches? And so there's this question of sort of what money means in this case. Does it mean assets? Does it mean you know liquid cash? And um, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Well, first thing I'll say is every Catholic diocese in the United States is uh, distinct, is different, and is organized separately. So when the Archdiocese of San Francisco files for bankruptcy, it's the debtor. It's the one that's liable. It's the entity that's liable for sex abuse. Um, And so, you know, kind of... uh, the, the idea that, oh, the Catholic Church worldwide has a huge amount of property that made that's, you know, sort of beside the point. The, the legal question is, what are the resources? What's the assets uh, available that belong to or that, that's owned by, controlled by the Archdiocese of San Francisco that should be available to pay the claims of its um, creditors? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really an important part of the bankruptcy case. Uh, uh, to try to get a sense or, or to, to make um, 
to provide information that creditors are going to need about the uh, the wealth or the the resources of the archdiocese, so that they can decide whether to vote to uh, support the plan of reorganization uh, or not. Um, so I was mentioning earlier the financial disclosure that the archdiocese is is going to have to make. It's all directed toward providing creditors with the information that they need to try to figure out whether the deal that that they're getting in the bankruptcy case um, is uh, attractive to them. Is it one that they want to support or would they prefer to take their chances outside of bankruptcy? Because if the archdiocese can't confirm a plan of reorganization, that's exactly where they're going to end up. So the valuation of property is complicated, especially when it's sacred property, religious property, special use property. There are assets that are held by the archdiocese and other Catholic organizations that are subject to restrictions imposed by the donor. Um, there are uh, properties, real, real estate that's um, affected by zoning restrictions. Um, so when when we could kind of look around and say, wow, that's a beautiful cathedral, it's, it's a different thing to try to figure out what exactly is that cathedral worth because there are going to be a lot of factors that are important in trying to um, uh, ascertain what you know what use could be made of 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 that property by somebody else, and what might somebody be willing to pay for it? Historically, looking at the the cases that have resolved so far, um, dioceses that have been able to successfully come out of bankruptcy have all, almost always. Uh, had to raise a, a significant amount of cash, typically by selling property um, that they're not currently using for some kind of mission critical purpose um, in order to fund the settlement trust that ultimately pays uh, pays mm -hmm. their creditors. So I, I don't know what's going to happen in San Francisco, but it's likely that um, in order to confirm a plan, the diocese is going to have to come up with cash either by selling property or by um, borrowing uh, against property. Um, and, and also, uh, you know, requiring parishes and other affiliates within the diocese to come up with, with cash in order to get creditors to agree to accept the plan. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's some restructuring of the, um, of the archdiocese, uh, but, you know, that, that remains to be seen. That's an important part of what happens in a bankruptcy case. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Claire in San Jose. Welcome. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Hi. So as a lifelong Catholic, um, I have some familiarity with what priests go through in seminary training. And my understanding is that there's little to no financial training as part of that. And when they get promoted into an archbishop position, they're now required almost to be the CEO of the archdiocese in making financial decisions. Uh, so I wondered, in this particular circumstance with the Archdiocese of San Francisco, do we know, is Archbishop Coeur d'Alene the one making this decision to file for bankruptcy? And if not, who is responsible for that decision and how are they being advising? I'm just curious how that works. Yeah, uh, me too, Claire. Um, let me, Michael Lachlan, do you want to take a first stab at this one? 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, that there's truth to that, that uh, priests are acting as leaders of nonprofit organizations, essentially. And the priests I've talked to say that they wish they had more training in how to manage these organizations. By the time someone is elevated to archbishop level, uh, it's possible he's gone through training, uh, either through Rome or uh, here in the United States, uh, on how to manage a diocese. But it's never uh, the archbishop alone, even though he could be the one ultimately making the decision. He'd have a team of advisors, boards, uh, lawyers, certainly, who would be helping to inform what the best next steps are. Uh, and dioceses vary uh, in terms of how they might make those decisions. But ultimately, it would be the archbishop's decision on uh, next steps. And it's likely in San Francisco, that was the case as well. Yeah. Um, one, let's get another caller in here. Kathleen in Martinez. Welcome. Hi, good morning. My name is Kathleen from Martinez, California. Thank you for taking my call on this important topic. I would like for you to give this another day of comment, which I think would be valuable. But who takes care of, um, who is paying for all of these things that the church has failed to address so far? Who is currently paying for these things? The good priests who are still there, they've lost benefits, they've lost other things in terms of of, uh, services that they had previously had or they thought they had. Um, and who else in the parish loses? Catholics who are regular parishioners who go to those churches, uh, they have lost a lot. The parishes don't have regular church services anymore. Some of them have just divided into three or four parishes. As somebody mentioned before, they're just unwilling to look at some ways that they can keep these parishes afloat and do better at what they're doing. Yeah. I think it's a very important part of the whole whole thing, in addition to the people who are affected. Yeah. who will no longer have their real voice and be able to have everything out there. If you try to research something on a on the website of any of these par- parishes as far as to get to some of these issues, it is buried very deep in there. It's not anything you can get to very quickly to find out what they've done about anything or who's been accused and all of that. Yeah. So I would like to see more on that. Hey, uh, Kathleen, thank you so much for for your perspective, and thank you for listening. You know, Mike, these seem to be the the big questions for for people. Both in addition to the uh, sympathy and empathy and love they have for people who uh, have survived this clergy abuse, they're also worried about the rest of the church and the priests who didn't do anything wrong. And how how have you tried to make sense of that yourself, or how have you you know heard people doing that from your reporting? Yeah, it's true. Uh, There is this sense that there needs to be justice for survivors. At the same time, there's a deep mourning for what's been lost. Um, I think a lot of parishes are struggling because of these revelations. A lot of people stop going to church. We know that. There's also other challenges at work, Uh, the decline of institutions in general in the United States, uh, the kind of rapid secularization of society. I don't think we can sort of blame all the challenges facing the Catholic Church on these revelations. I think it's important to uh, try to hold both in tandem, uh, making sure that the church does what is right, while also trying to make sure its ministries go forward. I think there is a sense of sadness, though, that this institution, which for so long was able to contribute so much to society, has been so diminished because of the bad leadership of bishops who were covering up abuse, of priests who were abusing children and minors. I I think there's this real tension for Catholics who have chosen to remain part of the institution. How do we look toward the future while dealing with the crimes and the sins of the past? I'm not sure there's a great model out there yet, but I think part of it is recognizing the good work the church continues to do today while also holding it to account for the uh, crimes it committed in the past. Let's bring in uh, Mike in San Jose. Welcome to the show, Mike. 
Thank you. Um, so my comment is that, you know, I was abused by a Catholic church in the Catholic church by a priest when I was 11 years old. I'm about to turn 70. And the previous caller had raised the question about who pays for this. Well, um, my, my comment is that the survivors have paid for it. I have paid for it in years of mental health issues, in years of counseling, in years of recovering from substance abuse. Um, for me, there's no question about who has paid for it. And part of what I feel is missing in this conversation is that. You know, if there is any money to be gained, it should be going to the mental health needs of people who were abused. And I think that the conversation about, you know, liquidating assets and all the other things having to do with bankruptcy diminishes the pain, suffering, um, guilt, all the things that survivors had to go through, Mm -hmm. um, in my case, for 50 years. So I just feel that this conversation... And, and this is the second time in my life I called forum. Mm-hmm. I called once when Mr. Krasny was hosting, probably five, six years ago. And it was this exact same conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, let so me, in five, six years, the ball hasn't moved. Well, Mike, let me ask you this. I mean, one of the reasons we're covering this is because this is the process that's kind of the, the church has thrown this question of justice to. Um, what, what for you would be a process that would mean justice or that could get you there? Well, I think, you know, the adjudication of the cases which have been filed, um, I have never done that. Um, I've been advised not to, just because of the re-traumatization that would come from that. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is some, some way that, you know, that healthcare providers, if there was, you know, some way that victims, you know, and I used to be an active member of SNAP in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, some way that the, the victims who have been identified, um, you know, receive compensation specific to, you know, the mental health issues that they've had to suffer through over the years. Um, and you know, it's more about, to me, it's more about the use of the money as opposed to how the money is, is, you know, is gained from the church. Yeah. Hey, Mike, um, Thank you so much for for calling in. I appreciate that you've you've been keeping us to account on making sure we don't lose, you know, sight of the kind of like really moral outrage at the at the core of this. Even as we're trying to like lay out, um, you know, the practical things around it. Um, Joey Piscatelli, I mean, what's your reaction as a, a fellow survivor? Well, I'm I'm one of the uh, few people who have actually gone to a court jury trial. Most victims I know would rather not do that uh, because of the triggering and everything it puts you through. And I sympathize with what the caller said because um, it, it's the pain and suffering that you have all through the years that's accumulative. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the bish- the diocese of San Francisco uh, was very cruel to me when I sued and when when I went to court. Uh, I sued a San Francisco priest, a Salesian priest, and what they did in response uh, to my suing them uh, and this priest is they kept him in ministry at St. Peter and Paul's in San Francisco during the entire court process. So for two years, while it spun through the courts, he was in ministry at St. Peter and Paul's at a church in Cathedral, 
with children at the school uh, all during the trial. So they didn't remove him until I had won the trial. So that the way the way they treat victims, and that's a good example, yeah. uh, is not is not forthcoming, and, and it's not correct, and, and it's it's not with empathy or sympathy. So I yeah, go ahead. Well, let me say, you know, I I also just feel it feels strange to have this process where people are wanting you know, moral closure to be moving through a bankruptcy court, but that's sort of what's happening. I'm, did you get some healing from winning your case, from getting your day in court? Yes, there's vindication. Yes. And I, and I think a lot of people in through, through this bankruptcy process are not going to achieve that. Um, Mm. And we don't really know exactly what is going to happen. Uh, But what we're trying to do is, is, is get some kind of vindication. Um, so mm-hmm. hopefully that's going to come about, but we don't even know how long it's going to take. And for a lot of people, they're sent, they're sitting on pins and needles here waiting and they have no idea what's going to happen with this bankruptcy. Yeah. Marie Riley, I have one, one question left for you, which is, you know, this, this bankruptcy proceeding will essentially kind of settle all the claims up to that date, as I understand it. Right. So if someone is abused, you know, as a young person who's abused right before this bankruptcy filing, will they ever be able to even make a claim in the future? So uh, what what's happened in, in bankruptcy cases uh, that have preceded this one is that um, the process includes a representative of what's known as future claimants, people who maybe were abused and they're still minors or mm-hmm. for whatever reason um, uh, were unable to bring a claim before the bankruptcy court as part of the bankruptcy process. And uh, the settlement, uh, the settlement negotiation process, they are represented by a court appointed future claims representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are uh, abused in after the archdiocese has filed for bankruptcy, they're not going to be affected by the bankruptcy case mm-hmm. at all. Got it. Got it. So it's just those folks who are kind of in, in that period before the bankruptcy filing. Um, we yes. have been talking about the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing of the San Francisco Catholic Diocese and what it means for clergy abuse survivors as well as the faithful. We've been joined by Marie Riley, professor of law at Penn State University and an expert in this kind of bankruptcy. Thanks so much for joining us, Marie. My pleasure. We've also been joined by attorney Rick Simons, who's been counselor, co-counsel for many uh, abuse survivors. Thank you so much for joining us, Rick. Thank you. Been joined by Joey Piscatelli, Northwest Group Leader with the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Thank you, Joey. Thank you. And we've also been joined by Mike Lachlan, National Correspondent and Associate Editor with America, the Jesuit Review. Mike, are you going to continue following on with this uh, with this beat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll yeah. keep covering this um, and everything else that the Catholic Church of the United States is up to. Thank you so much. Earlier, we spoke with San Francisco Chronicle reporter Sophia Bolog, and you can follow her um, coverage of this as well. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.